Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you in meeting for worship again. I'm sorry we're not face-to-face, but it is good to be with you. I want to start out this morning um, by saying something that I should have said, oh, probably two, three times along the way for the last couple of weeks, the whole time we've been talking about Philippians. Uh, Gordon Fee is a guy who wrote a book, a commentary, and I just think it's important to give credit to our sources. And without Gordon's book, I probably wouldn't have been able to work my way through the messages that you've been hearing for the last couple of weeks, the one you're going to hear today and probably next week as well. So before we even get started, I just want to say thanks to Gordon Fee. He's been a really helpful resource. And I mention it publicly and out loud because two things are important. One, um, it's important for you to know that I don't just carry all this stuff around in my head um, any more than you do. I have to prepare for these things, thus prepared message. But the second reason that I take time to share it publicly is I hope you want to know more about the conversation that Paul was having with the Philippians and Gordon Fee's commentary on Philippians is a really good resource, so I'll pass that along. Um, as we start looking at today's text, we start this week the same place we did last week. If you recall, we um, observed that the first couple of verses of chapter 3 really went more with chapter 2 than they did with chapter 3. I have to give whichever monk or scholar uh, added the numbers to the text of the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. I have to give them points for consistency because they did the same thing at chapter 4 that they did in chapter 3. Uh, the beginning where it says, therefore, my brothers. And so, you know, anytime somebody says, therefore, it's important to stop and pay attention to what it's there for. <laughs> um, and usually it refers to whatever came before it, not what comes after it. Seems to be the case here. So we're really kind of starting with the second verse again. Um, and Paul has gotten personal. Now, you may just be starting in this week. So let me back up and give just a little bit of a background about how we got to this point in the conversation. Um, now, of course, Paul is in Rome in prison uh, where he, he's there for conflicts that he had while preaching in various places. Um, he was sent to Rome. The situation that he's writing to in Philippi is, as you may recall, because of the history of their city, um, which was sort of refounded after, uh, after they chased down and brought to justice uh, someone who had killed a previous emperor. They avenged the emperor right outside the city of Philippi just a few hundred years before Paul's writing this letter. So it's a very, um, our word, not their word, it's a very patriotic city in terms of loyalty to the Roman Empire and emperor. Now, of course, that's a challenge for the early Christian community because they have uh, Christ as their Lord, as their leader, uh, the recipient of their highest devotion, not the emperor. So the Christian community in Philippi is always at odds with the local uh, culture, and they, they catch some heat for it. That's what Paul's encouraging them for. Look, you can, you can do this. But they catch heat because they're not considered good enough Romans. They've got this crazy idea of a mixed loyalty to this Jesus character instead of to the emperor. Nobody in Philippi can make sense of that. 
I mean, why would you not worship the emperor? That, you know, it's just one of those walking around assumptions that the Philippians would have had uh, that the early church had to deal with. The church in Philippi was persecuted for their loyalty to Jesus. So that gets us caught up uh, on why Paul wrote this letter, a little bit about the setting. So we pick up in this fourth chapter. At this point, he has started naming names. Now, he's written the general encouragement that he has given to the community throughout the whole letter is to be of one mind. Paul is in Rome where he's observing the Roman church uh, be divided with disagreements over what their priorities are and how to best live out their faithfulness. They're having real conflicts over really important topics. And Paul's watching all this and his main message to the Philippians is be of one mind. And he does that kind of generically, sort of 30,000 feet, just as a concept. Hey, y'all, be united. Don't be divided. But when we get to this fourth chapter, Paul starts naming names. Now, we don't know anything about whatever the situation was between uh, Euodia and, and Syntyche. We, we don't know what their conflict was. We could give them the benefit of the doubt, and we could say that they were doing a good job as co-leaders of this community, but the needs and demands of the community were overwhelming them, and they needed help. That's one way to read Paul's encouragement. It may even be the most likely way, um, because as, as we read on, Paul doesn't really have anything negative to say. He's like, hey, these are good folk. we got to help them out. We need to be sure that their leadership is able to thrive because they've been working hard right alongside me all this time. So Paul doesn't seem so much to be criticizing as just noting, naming, uh, bringing to the foreground for helpful encouragement and discussion. But he doesn't seem to be criticizing or calling out or chastising. Just doesn't, doesn't read that way. But it does make the letter. That's really the point of observation about Paul's mention of this specific interpersonal conflict. That's the other way we could read it. Uh, perhaps these two individuals, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, just can't get along. Doesn't matter that they're each good leaders. The, the clash that they have with each other spilling over into the rest of the community and keeping things from working like they need to. Paul's like, hey, y'all got to get this worked out. I'm hoping that some of the folks I'm sending can either help lighten the load or help straighten out the disagreement, whatever. But this thing that's personal is affecting the community. That's the takeaway. The observation here is that we have a responsibility. Paul names it with the Philippians. We have to name it among ourselves. We have a responsibility not to let our personal uh, differences, our personal preferences, uh, our personal uh, needs and quirks, we, we have a responsibility not to let those get in the way of what's good for the meeting. Paul says uh, to the folks in, in Philippi, 
what's happening in this little conflict that you're having so important that I have to stop what I'm talking about in this letter, mention it. Boy, I really hope y'all get this worked out. We ought to take note of that. Because in our polite Southern culture, <clears throat> it's often far more important um, to appear to be nice than helpfully truthful. It's often more important to appear to be uh, friendly or sweet or whatever. You know all the things we do down here in the South to keep from actually risking hurting someone's feelings by telling them the truth. Paul apparently isn't from the South because he comes right out and names names in the middle of this conflict. We're about to be heading into a season where we have to talk about um, important questions, important challenges, and we have to look back over our history in these upcoming meetings that we're going to be having uh, to prepare for your pastoral transition. And it's going to be important to say the things that need to be said. Paul sets an example for us here that we need to follow. We need to be willing to say, hey, you know what? This, this challenge that I've been having personally, um, it's been getting in the way of my participation in the community, my full commitment and, and helpful work with the meeting has been suffering because of whatever it is that's going, you may have to work some of that out. I don't even know what the conflicts are, but I know that any community of people who've been together for long time like you have you have history and some of that history includes misunderstanding and disagreement and conflict perceived slight here and there maybe even I don't know I didn't share that history with you but I know people well enough to know that as we enter into these conversations it's going to be just as important for us to have the same kind of Loving and caring boldness that Paul has in naming a problem. Paul says, you know what? You being faithful to the gospel is the most important thing. And here's something that's keeping it from happening. We've got to talk about it. He hopes for a good outcome. Again, he doesn't seem to be chastising. He doesn't seem to be uh, complaining or criticizing seems to be encouraging. That's what we need to be doing with each other. But in order to encourage one another to greater faithfulness, we may have to actually name some things and put them on the table so they can be talked about. It's part of the challenge we're going to have coming up in these uh, meetings that we'll be having to discuss your transition. But you can do it. I've got about as much confidence in you folks as Paul had in the Philippians. Now, in the rest of this passage... Paul shifts gears, and he does another really important thing that we will completely miss if we don't mean to see it. Now, Paul's hope is that they can get these personal conflicts worked out so that they can move on to greater effectiveness in living out the gospel. So he says a word about what that would look like as he transitions uh, away. I'm going to read them to you. Finally, beloved, starting in verse 8. 
Finally, beloved, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Just above that, he also says, you know, don't worry about anything. Um, Don't be anxious about anything in some translations. Listen to those phrases. Some of them may even sound familiar to you. Um, There's a reason for that. What Paul is writing in this passage, I'm going to move over so you can see this quote. Um, True happiness is to enjoy the present without anxious dependence upon the future. That comes from uh, a Hellenistic philosopher named Seneca, and Seneca was the first of the philosophers known as the Stoics. Now, Stoic philosophy is the currency of the day when Paul is writing this letter. So the Roman culture that the Philippians are sort of at odds with is, is sort of defined by these Stoic ideas, the the, uh, Stoic ideas, uh, other thinkers like Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, if you've read anything of theirs, these were the Stoics. And their basic idea was that you needed to be self-sufficient by being independent and not dependent on anyone, Uh, sort of a, you know, one person island. It's really closely aligned to what we hear people talking about, the, the um, idea of rugged American individualism. Uh, Stoicism is an individualistic philosophy. And as I said, it was the currency of the day in Rome. What Paul is doing in this letter is brilliant. He is at the same time mirroring the familiar thought patterns of the Stoic philosophy that that the Philippians would have been comfortable with. This is what they would have grown up with. They grew up assuming that you need to be independent and self-sufficient. At the same time Paul is mirroring that language, he's completely undoing it. He's using their familiarity with it to communicate with them while simultaneously completely undoing all of the hogwash that they've known as Stoicism. Now, that's probably a little bit extreme, but I'm just making contrast. Paul is pointing out that their sufficiency is not rooted in their individuality. It's rooted in their dependence on Jesus. So he's simultaneously undoing the independent, um, falsely inflated idea that any one individual can withstand and survive the world all alone. Um, And he's, in effect, questioning whether or not it's even a worthy ideal. This idea of complete stark individualism. Paul is instead pointing on not the independent individual, but the dependent on Christ member of a community. And that's the crux of the conflict. The crux of the conflict 
is individuals versus community. Sound familiar? It should. We're facing that same dilemma in our own country, in our own culture today. Which will win the day? Rights of individuals, rights of communities, preferences of individuals, preferences of communities. We are living out this exact same tension. So it's worth paying attention to what Paul says to the Philippians about how to think our way through all this, how to behave in light of our commitments to Christ in the midst of this situation. If we listen in our own context to what Paul is saying to the Philippians in their context, we have to get really serious about a couple of ideas. Um, Our culture is also fascinated with this rugged individualism. Now, because of a couple of hobbies that I have, both uh, ham radio and some of the homesteading type stuff that I do out at the farm, when I'm on the internet looking up stuff related to those two topics, I'm never very far, I'm never more than three or four clicks away from getting into pretty hardcore conversations with, with what you may be familiar with known as preppers. Preppers are folks who, you know, want to hoard up supplies and be sure they have what they need in case things go sideways, power goes out, or all of society falls apart depending on your level of extremity. Um, Some preppers are kind of extreme. Some are just thoughtful. It's one thing to be ready, um, like for the last couple weeks, when you have bad weather, you can't get to the store. Really good idea to have some stuff at home, be able to have a few groceries and enough water to get through two or three days without having to risk going out. Being prepared is a really good thing. They taught me that in Boy Scouts. However, uh, some people really go to the extreme and like they'll load in months and months and months of food and dig bunkers in their backyards and, and buy lots of ammunition to prepare to kill all their neighbors if they come for any of the food when the end of the world comes. That's a bankrupt strategy. Paul is making a contrast here between individualism and community. He's using the language that they're familiar with, saying, don't worry about anything. And that's straight out of Stoicism. Um, Whatever is commendable, you know, don't focus on the negative, focus on the positive, that positivity, straight out of Stoicism. Paul is quoting their Stoicism back to them while completely undoing it. You're not independent. You're dependent on Christ if you're doing it right. You're not independent. You're connected to one another. He's just shown us how this conflict between Euodia and Syntyche is, is just between the two of them, but it's affecting the whole community because we're not independent. We're interconnected. Paul seems both to be observing this and advocating for it. This idea that we're not in it alone. None of us is sufficient in our own abilities, gifts, desires. We have to figure out how to be of one mind. How to do this together. 
And we may learn something along the way about what is important about doing community at large. Because preparation for when things go bad uh, starts now when things are good. And the assumptions that we have about what we're preparing for are going to determine how well we do at preparing. What do I mean by that? Just like that fine line between the wisdom of being prepared versus the folly of hoarding in supplies that you would never be able to protect, even if you thought you wanted to. The fine line, that difference, is always present in our attempts to live in community with one another. We're always torn between making sure that me and mine have what we need, that I have what I need and my people are taken care of versus doing whatever we have to do to look out for the well-being of as many possible people as we can around us, community versus individual. We might learn that the only real way to have preparation for security to survive hard times by being of one mind, by being an interconnected community. If you've built relationships with your neighbors ahead of time so that your relationships with your neighbors are part of your survival strategy, then you don't have to spend all your time and energy on a survival strategy of hoarding resources to fight off your friends and neighbors. Just invite the neighbors to be part of the strategy. You can't do that Once you have problems, once everybody's in that survival mindset, it's too late. You have to start now. You have to live in community with one another now if you want community to be a resource when times get hard. Part of what I hope can be true for us as we move into these focused conversations that we're going to be having over the next few months is that we can get really serious about setting aside individualism and leaning into being a community of friends mutually dependent on Christ. Regardless of what our culture tries to tell us about how wonderful individualism is and how we should all lean heavily into the things that are important to us, I'd rather listen to Paul. I think he gave good advice to the Philippians. Do whatever you have to do to work out what's different between you. He said that to Euodia and Syntyche. But he said it out loud in front of the whole group. I think he meant it to apply to everyone. Do whatever you have to do to have the conversations you need to have to work out the differences between you because you're all dependent on Christ. And the only way you'll get through the challenges that you face is by figuring out how to be of one mind. This message of unity was important enough for Paul to include it in a quickly scribbled note from prison to friends back home. I think it's important enough for us to listen to today as well. I hope you'll find some encouragement in the idea that you're not in it alone do have a community of friends around you that can be part of your strategy for how you navigate challenges. But it takes practice. We have to start today.